Let's pray and we'll get into this fantastic passage. Well, Father God, we recognise that every good gift uh, comes from you, our loving Heavenly Father. We thank you so much for the Lord Jesus, his death, his resurrection, the life that we have in him. And we thank you for this word. Uh, Thank you for your spirit among us. And we pray that tonight you would be doing a work by it, by your mighty word. Please grip our hearts with the truths we find in this passage. Please transform, please bring new life even, we pray. And we pray all of this in your son's mighty name. Amen. Well, growing up, uh, I kind of saw two curious, almost contradictory things in my family home. Uh, My mum was a psychologist, which was fun, and my dad worked for Docs, which is now called Fax. And so my parents were at work, they were surrounded by lots of messy stuff, broken um, families and lives and so on, Uh, people who need lots of love and care. Uh, And in that context, what I saw from mum and dad uh, was, first of all, really clear work-life boundaries. I don't know if you know what that looks like, but Dad never talked with the people at work about where we lived and things like that. Uh, Sometimes people would find out our address and Dad would sit the kids down and have a family meeting and he'd be like, not allowed to open the doors to people anymore. If people come around, keep the doors locked, all that kind of stuff. Mum was really careful not to, as a psychologist, not to see um, people who were friends and family and things like that and have appropriate family uh, work-life boundaries. That was one thing I saw growing up. But here's the second kind of curious thing that I saw in the mix of that. My parents are committed Christians and growing up, family life was filled with this kind of messy love for Jesus' church. Uh, Mum and dad were, for some reason, I have no idea why, but mum and dad were involved in a ministry to the bikey community. They're not into bikes or anything like that, but I remember as like a little kid, photos of me sitting on Harleys in the backyard with all these bikes parked all over the place, these bearded dudes and all that kind of stuff. Uh, Family, friends and so on would would come and live with us for a few weeks at times and when, you know, something, tragedy had hit or marriage had busted up or something like that, our house was full of people in all sorts of context with my parents doing their best to have a, a love for the, for the messy people of God in, in all its glory. Now, our passage here tonight is full of some pretty messy relationship stuff, as you can see there. And it's in that context that Paul, the apostle, is committed to pouring himself out for these people. And some of the things, as you read it there, you can see it, is full of a lot of emotion, um, in fact, my growth group this week, we played a game for a few minutes and they said, hey, let's play that at church. And I was like, why not? Let's do it. And so we're going to play a game for a second. Turn to the person next to you. If you've got a Bible, share it with the person next to you if they don't have one and talk about this from these verses. What verse or sentence kind of sounds like the kind of thing you could say in a romantic relationship type context, an emotional romantic thing. Go, chat to the person next to you. <laughs> All right, that'll do. Tell you what, that'll do, guys. Bring it back in. If there was ever a night at church to make sure you sat next to someone you wanted to talk to, tonight's been it. You've talked to them like three or four times by now. Sorry about that. But um, what'd you come up with? Shout it out. Give us a sentence. Someone. I made a fool of myself. 
Oh, that's beautiful. You're in sync as well. I love that. That's Liam and Hazy. I think. Yeah, other ones. What was that? No, go again. I caught you by trickery. Yeah, wow, wild. Yep, yep. There's so many. Keep going. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't even spot that one, but that's good. Very good. Yep. Keep them coming. Yes. Babe, if I love you more, will you love me less? Yep, yep. Yep, sure. Yep. I'm not the least bit inferior to these super apostles. Classic, no. Anything else? That'll do us for now. You can eat dinner and talk about those kind of things. Now, we know that what we're looking at here is not a romantic letter. This is a letter from Paul to the Corinthian church. But as he writes this letter, there is this kind of reckless commitment to love and care for this church. Have a look there at verse 15. Have a look there. He says, So I'll I'll very gladly spend for you everything I have and expend myself as well. He's willing, glad, he says, to spend everything on them, to spend his very self, expend himself. I wonder, how does that sit with you? As you think about the people in this room, on the one hand, it can sound kind of good, noble, a good thing to do, right? But I wonder if on the flip side, you perhaps might feel a little bit sceptical, a little bit cautious, maybe a little bit worried. What if if people just take and take from me? What if I get taken advantage of? What if I give too much of myself? What if I burn out or or something like that? And so what do you do with this passage here in front of us? Should we be like Paul in this? Should this be us? And even if we wanted it to be us, what would sustain us for a lifetime of this sort of selfless love in the long run? Would it be worth it if we did it? Now this passage in front of us is going to take us right into the heart of a messy love for a messy people of God. And it's going to challenge us. We're going to see the costs laid out, what it costs to love this way. But we're also going to see the glorious good, the eternal value of a life of love. And so let's dive in. Uh, Verses 11 to 13, they again remind us of the context. This is the same context we've been in for about four or five weeks now. This is the final section, though, where Paul's defending his apostleship. Uh, the claim that he is an apostle sent by Jesus to, for, to lead this church. The counterclaim is that there's these super apostles, verse 11, who reckon that Paul's rubbish. Have a look at verse 11. You see the thing that's going on there. He says, I've made a fool of myself, but you drove me to it. I ought to have been commended by you, from not the least inferior to the super apostles, even though I am nothing. So he's saying all this boasting, it's stupidity what's been going on. I shouldn't have had to do this, he's saying. And it's actually painfully ironic that he's had to because they're meant to be the ones who would defend him and who he is as an apostle. He says back in chapter 3, verse 1 in the same book, he says that you, you Corinthians are my letter of recommendation, my commendation. They are the result of his ministry. They're a letter confirming who he is, written not in ink, but in the Spirit of God. 
testifying to him as an apostle. But instead of them commending him, he spent the last three chapters being forced into defending himself, playing this boasting game to defend himself. Now, to this point, it is worth noting, we are not in the same context as the Apostle Paul. As you come to this chapter, we're not apostles. Uh, So you don't just simply read what Paul has done here and go, well, I guess this needs to be what I do as well. You're not an apostle of Jesus. You get that insight in verse 12. Have a look there. He says, I persevered in demonstrating among you the marks of a true apostle, including signs, wonders, and miracles. So we don't speak on behalf of Jesus the way that Paul did. We don't write scripture the way that Paul did. Likewise, our ministry together doesn't need to be authenticated by signs, wonders and miracles and things like that. That's the thing that actually accompanied all the people who spoke for God throughout the whole Bible, in fact. Have a look up on the screen here. The same is true of the Old Testament prophets. Many of them were accredited by signs, wonders and miracles. When they turned up, God was saying, pay attention to these people, they're prophets, look at what they can do, listen to what they say, they speak for me. Likewise, same thing with Jesus. His ministry was accredited by signs, wonders and miracles. Now, you could just see this in the pages of any of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, but there's a summary of it. In Acts there, Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs. That was Jesus. Likewise, the same is true of Paul as well. There's a summary there in Acts 14. So, Paul Barnabas spoke boldly for the Lord who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. And that's Paul's point here in verse 12. I shouldn't have to remind you who I am. I'm an apostle. I'm legit. And my message was accompanied by the same thing that the rest of the people who wrote the Bible. So, not everything that Paul does is meant to be just a straight model for us. Paul did it, let's go copy him. Now, <clears throat> give me a sec. Now, can signs, wonders and miracles still happen today? Well, of course. God's still the same mighty God. Nothing's changed there. He can do whatever he wants, of course. But do we need to expect our ministry, in whatever context we're in, to have signs, wonders and miracles for it to be a valid ministry? No, we're not apostles. It's not the same thing. But, although there's lots that's dissimilar to Paul, there's a lot we can gain from his model here in this passage as well. We may not need the signs, wonders and miracles, but we are explicitly called to have the same life of love that Paul had for this church. And that's really what we're going to see in this passage tonight, the life of love. Here's the first big thing we see about it. Messy love is willing to spend ourselves on others. Have a look there, verse 14. He says, now I'm ready to visit you for the third time and I'll not be a burden to you because what I want is not your possessions, but you. After all, children should not have to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. He's saying, I'm not going to be a burden financially on you guys. I want to pay for myself, be supported by other churches to do so as well, like a father pays for their children. That's what I want to be for you. But did you catch why? His reasoning as to why? Because I don't want your stuff. I want you. I want you, he says. 
which would have been another good line in our romantic verses, wouldn't it? But anyway, he's not saying, I've got the hots for you, though. He's saying, I want your life. I want your souls. I want you. Now, our NIV translations, uh, they don't have this uh, word there, but the ESV does. Check it out up on the screen. It's another translation of the Bible here. Uh, Paul says, verse 15, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? See, Paul's deep concern for them isn't just arbitrarily he's hoping they're okay. He wants their very life. He wants their souls is his concern. That they would be eternally right with God is his concern. And so to that end, he says these staggering words... I'll spend everything on you, I'll spend myself on you and all of that gladly for your souls. This reminds me of um, Groot from the Guardians of the Galaxy. Uh, Remember Groot? Yeah, I've referenced him before on socials. But remember that big tree guy, Groot, who grows his body and uses it to fight as a weapon, the tree limbs and all that kind of stuff. But you remember in the second one, you watch the second movie, if you don't watch them often, and you turn up to the second one and Groot's like a tiny pot plant. Go back a slide. He's that tiny little pot plant guy. Do you remember how that happened and why he's a tiny pot plant, if you've seen it? It's pretty, it's a tearjerker, it's pretty heavy. Groot and the other guys, they're, they're hurtling toward a planet to crash in this spaceship, right? And they're going to be killed by this crash. It's going to kill them. But what Groot does is he encases them in his own body. He wraps his own tree body around them, cocoons them in, and then the, the ship crashes and he spends his body on them. He's shattered to pieces and they're kept safe. He spends himself for them. That's Paul in this passage, spending himself on them gladly. And in fact, aside from Groot, you know who this reminds me of? Jesus, the one who came and died and gave his body, gave his life for our souls. He willingly, resolutely marched to the cross. Ephesians chapter 5, you can see it up on the screen there, you can flick there if you want. But Paul says this in another letter, he says... Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love. Just as Christ loved us and gave himself for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Huge. Jesus' life, it says, was poured out, gave up in a sacrifice, the kind that's burnt up to God, offered up. Paul's heart is the same heart as Jesus' heart to spend himself for this church. They don't deserve his love, we don't deserve Jesus' love either, but he wants to be like his Lord. And did you see it there in the verse? That's what we are called to as well, called to walk in the way of love, like Jesus. Give yourselves up in love. Which does mean this, whatever you want to say about Boundaries and self-care and avoiding burnout, which are all good things to say and avoid the bad part of that. Don't, you, know, you don't want to burn out, you do want boundaries. It's all, it's all that's good, but we need to get this piece locked in. You've got to catch this. In that context, it's deeply Christian to be radically other person-centered. It's deeply Christian to spend yourself and be spent for others in love. Brothers and sisters, this is who we are. 
as God's people. So are you willing to spend and be spent for Jesus and his church? Because that's the Christian life. Now let's flesh that out a little bit and see this in more detail. See one example of how this sort of love can be lived out among us. Here's the second thing in this passage. Messy love puts yourself aside to strengthen others. Now verses 16 to 18, we get more details there about how Paul continues to defend his actions among this church. Uh, Verse 16, it's a bit sarcastic, have a look, he says, Be that as it may, I have not been a burden to you yet, here's the the, uh, the sarcastic bit, yet crafty fellow that I am, I caught you by trickery which is probably their accusation of him. They're saying, they're accusing him, or perhaps, or or inferring that he's done something sus. He's been tricking them with money and that kind of stuff. And he says, no, I haven't done anything sus among you, and neither have the guys I sent you. Look at verse 17. He says, did I exploit you through any of the men I sent you? I urged Titus to go to you, and I sent our brother with him. Titus did not exploit you, did he? Did did we not walk in the same footsteps by the same Spirit? He's saying, just like the guys I sent you, myself included, none of us have done anything sus. We're not trying to rip you off. We're not trying to take your money for ourselves. That's not what we're on about. But here's the important bit. Why? Why is Paul so, so driven to make sure that this church knows that his intentions are good? Why is he so careful for them to know that he's not been sus and doing anything dodgy, but that his intentions are good? Look at verse 19. He says, Have you been thinking all along that we've been defending ourselves to you? No, we've been speaking in the sight of God as those in Christ. And everything we do, dear friends, is for your strengthening. This is for your sake, everything that I'm talking about. He's not defending himself because he cares what they think about him. In a sense, he couldn't actually give a hoot what their opinion of him is. It's for their good. It's for their strengthening. This is all an act of love as he defends himself. Which means this as well. Notice that love doesn't mean only doing and saying nice things for one another. Sometimes nice things are quite easy to say, actually. Uh, Hopefully they're easy things for you to say. Mean things can be easy too if what you're trying to do is just be a jerk to the people around you. But you really know someone loves you when they're willing to say hard things for your good. And that's what Paul's been doing in this whole letter. He's defending his apostleship so they'd know who he is so that they would stick with Jesus for their good. Everything we do is for your strengthening. And so he says the hard stuff. He's going to say, verse 20, 21, you need to repent. Stop sinning. In fact, um, in my opinion, my boss who I work with here at church, Andrew Hurd, I think embodies this sort of thing. If I could talk about him for a minute. I really admire this about him. Um, I've had some hard conversations with Andrew uh, I've, as in he's talked to me and had hard conversations, but I've also been in conversations where we've had hard conversations with other people together, people who are in really hard, tricky situations where there's potential for people to get angry or hurt by the hard conversation that has to be had. 
Um, in those contexts, in those kind of conversations, my own personal temptation is to only say nice things or just kind of keep the status quo, not say things that would be in danger of upsetting the other person. And let me just assure you, it's not because I'm just a really nice guy. <laughs> it's not because I'm super nice. It's because I don't want other people to get upset at me. And so I protect myself that way. Andrew will always tell a person the hard truth that they need to hear, um, not the thing that's just going to make them happy. More precisely, he'll always tell a person the truth which is for their good. And I really admire that about him. Now, what would drive someone to have that sort of costly honesty with another person? What would drive someone like Hurdy to do that for 30 years or so? What, what would keep the Apostle Paul doing that kind of thing? What could give us here together the kind of courage to continually speak the truth in love to one another? What fuels that kind of a life? Well, I think the secret is there in verse 19. Paul is living, speaking with an audience of one. He says he speaks in the sight of God. I don't answer to the Corinthians, I answer to God, no one else. See, when you live for an audience of one, when you speak in front of an audience of one, two things happen. Number one, when you live in front of God, that is. Number one, we seek to obey God. And so we speak the truth in love, spend ourselves for others. We want to obey God in that. But number two, what happens is there's only one person whose opinion ends up mattering over and above everything else. God's opinion becomes the one that matters. And so you're actually liberated, free to speak the truth in love, even when it could be personally costly, when you're in danger of being misunderstood or seen as the bad guy. And so put deep roots down in this truth. There is only one person whose opinion truly matters, the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything else comes second to that. And so you don't have to have everyone always like you all the time. You don't have to be liked by everyone because it's an audience of one, it's Jesus. Isn't that liberating actually, to live for His opinion and no one else's? It'll actually free you to properly love and serve others because you don't have to just be liked. That's not your master anymore. Now, how can we live this out among us here at EV Night? How do do we do this? Well, first of all, be self-aware of what's going on when other people do hard things for your good. Perhaps as you sit under the leadership of people here at church, growth group leaders or uh, pastors and so on, seek the kind of leadership that's willing to do this. Don't just settle for people who are nice, but in our friendships with one another, in our relationships together, seek the kind of friend who would be willing to say the hard stuff. You know, if a brother or sister ever plucks up the courage to say something that's actually a bit hard or tricky to you, here's my advice when that happens. Just stop, (laughs) restrain yourself for a moment. It probably stings, it hurts. No one likes being told something that's hard to hear, do we? When we're like, hey, have you noticed this about yourself? No one likes to hear that, I don't. So when that happens, just stop (laughs) and sit in what they're saying. Don't throw rocks back at them because they've hurt you. Just stop and think, why are they saying this thing to me? Why would they say it? 
Now, it's possible that they're just a crazy person who likes hurting people. If they're a stranger online, that might be the case. But a trusted friend? Your family? Someone from church here? When they come and say something that might have a sting in it, that's a little bit challenging, do you really think that they're saying that because they just want to hurt you? How likely is that to be the case? That's pretty likely it's because they love you. Now, it is possible for people to have got it wrong. Godly, loving feedback can be still misguided or misunderstood. So, as you, if, if you ever bring a hard word to someone, bring it with a whole bunch of humility and don't assume the worst of people. But when it comes to hearing something like that, take an extra cup of humility and slow yourself down. I know this person loves me. I know they want my good. So I'm going to sit, I'm going to ponder this feedback and I'm going to take it on and bring it to God. God, is there something I need to see here that I, didn't, I haven't seen this, but they've, they've pointed it out. That's how you take a hard word from a friend who loves you. But here's the second thing, and I want to challenge us on this. Care enough about others to say the hard stuff to them as well. Now, if you're a leader here in kids or in youth or here at EV night, or if you one day find yourself in leadership in a church or somewhere, resolve to be this kind of a leader among God's people. The kind of leader who loves Jesus... And so loves Jesus' people and speaks the truth in love. For your friends here at church, be that sort of a mate. <laughs> when, when you hear from that friend and they go, um, this is a bit of an arbitrary example, so I don't read too much into it, right? But when you hear from that friend who says, good news, um, I'm going on a trip to Europe for three months with zero accountability as I take off, I'm all alone or I'm going with my boyfriend or girlfriend or that friend who is always leading me astray or whatever it is, right? They, they tell this news and alarm bells are going off in your head. You're worried for this friend. Will you do the polite thing and be like, oh, cool, lucky you, good for you. That's very exciting. Uh, or will you perhaps humbly ask some questions and say, oh, I am excited, but I'm just wondering, I'm worried about these things. Have you thought about this? Will you be that kind of person? When you spot something that concerns you in your brother or sister's life, will you wisely and gently and humbly check in on how they're doing? It's not easy. If you've ever done it, it's not easy. This is the kind of love that Jesus calls us to. And finally, here's the last piece in this passage. Messy love is actually emotionally invested in other people's souls other people's eternal destinies. Have a look there at verse 20 and catch all the different emotions that Paul expresses. expresses. The first one is fear. He says, I'm afraid that when I come, I may not find you as I want you to be and you may not find me as you want me to be. He says he's afraid. He's concerned for them. Now, what's the concern? He's concerned that when he turns up, there's going to be this giant spiritual mess in this church, and he's troubled by it. He keeps talking about his fears. Read on with me, verse 20 still. He says, I fear, I fear, he says, that there may be discord, which is not like the chat site, but big fights and so on, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, slander, gossip, arrogance and disorder. 
I'm afraid that when I come again, my God will humble me before you and I will be grieved, I'll be saddened over many who have sinned early and have not repented of the impurity, sexual sin and debauchery in which they've indulged. Did you catch all the emotions that Paul's wearing on his sleeve there? Afraid, grieved over what? Their sin, their lack of repentance, their souls. Now, Paul's warning here for the Corinthians should also serve as a warning for us. Did you, did you see that list of things there which he's afraid he's going to discover among this church when he visits? Keep, keep that list open with you there. He says it again, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, only looking out for number one, slander, gossip, arrogance, disorder, chaotic relationships, impurity, sexual sin, debauchery, which is like crazy partying and sleeping around all kind of bundled into one, debauchery. Here's what strikes me about that list though. It's eerily similar to another list that Paul wrote this church in his previous letter in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You'll see it up on the screen there, keep your Bibles open where you are. Uh, This was a list of things which they should have already repented of. I'm not not going to read the whole list, but do you see the overlap? He talks about sexual sin, drunkenness, debauchery, slander. Here's what strikes me. This stuff, which he wrote back in 1 Corinthians, is meant to be a thing of the past for this church. This is not who they are anymore, is what he says. Verse 11, he says, And such were some of you. This was your identity, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. This is who you used to be, 1 Corinthians. Yet here in this passage, Paul's deeply afraid that when he turns up, he's going to find the same mess all over again. His concern is that they'll actually have lost sight of their identity in Christ, that they'll have gone back to their old life of sin, that they'll be refusing to repent of their sin, living in it unrepentant. Ultimately, that they might have drifted away from Jesus altogether. And it terrifies him, keeps him up at night. This is worst fear for them. Now, do you hear the warning, though, for us? Do you see the stakes back in 2 Corinthians? Yeah, I'm a Christian, but I don't need to repent of everything. I won't repent of whatever that thing is for you. Jesus got that little bit a little bit wrong. The Bible got that bit wrong. You know, give up on swearing, yeah, I'll give that a go, that sounds like a good thing. Get rid of greed, yeah, really positive thing to do. Stop sleeping with my girlfriend or boyfriend. Mm. Nah, I don't know about giving up on that one. Maybe God got that bit wrong. God, you can have this bit of my life, I'll give you these bits, most of it, but not this bit. Hands off this bit, God, this bit's special. You can't have that bit. It doesn't work that way. It's incompatible with what it means to be a Christian. Jesus says, repent and believe the gospel. That's how you become a Christian. That's what it means to be a Christian. We're saved by grace, through faith. It's all by God's work. But that comes as we have faith 
and repent in that gospel message. So we turn to God and we say, God, I trust you, Jesus, as the Saviour, and Jesus, I trust you to run my life, to rule my life. Repentance. That begins at a moment in time when you become a Christian. You repent. Today, I repented and became a Christian, someone might say. But repentance remains your life's work. You don't ever stop repenting. By God's grace, you'll see more and more things, perhaps through the kind word of a friend or as you look at the word, you'll continue to see things that you need to repent of. That's the Christian life. And you need to continue to bring those things under the Lordship of Jesus. But the alarm bell should be going off when you say, God, you can't have that bit. No, not that bit, God. I'm not going to surrender that. Continue in faith and repentance. So there's the thing we need to remember personally from this passage, but here's what it might mean for us together uh, as we continue to serve one another. Ministry is full of service together, ministry is full of unrivaled joy. (laughs) Nothing brings more joy than serving God together. Great joy as you see people cross over from death to life with Jesus. The immense privilege of seeing a person's life transformed over years and years. It is wonderful. And yet ministry is also, for similar reasons, full of unprecedented sadness. Sadness of the souls of those who lose Jesus, who claim to be Jesus and who walk away from Him. It's it's a grief. It's a burden. Um, Here's a picture up on the screen uh, of our youth camp and this is now more than 10 years old, this picture. I can see Toto there and a few others. Um, But uh, I was our youth pastor at church here for uh, a bunch of years. What, What do I feel when I look at a picture like this 10 years on? Well, the first thing is, is joy. What a wonderful thing to see teenagers become new Christians and then from there into all sorts of places, honouring God in the long run, wherever He's taken them, leading their own crew through youth group, uh, raising Christian families if they're married, serving God in other countries in full-time ministry or, or witnessing to Jesus here on the coast in the work. It's the greatest joy. And the other thing I feel is a great sadness because there are those who over time have walked away from Jesus Now, don't mishear me as I talk about this. I'm not sitting in judgment over those people. It's not that I'm better than them or something like that. But for the grace of God, this is me as well. But when a person does walk away from Jesus, when they they fall in sin and then rather than pick themselves up and repent, as we all need to continue to do, they actually say, no, I'm sick of God running my life. Maybe I'll be better without Him. That's heartbreaking. Friends, this is the nature of messy love. It exposes us to heartbreak as well. You become emotionally invested in the souls of others. Now, as you hear that, be clear on this. You are not responsible for the decisions that other people make. Okay, That is on them. They need to make their own decisions. But still, you become invested in those decisions that they need to go and make. And so we've seen a bunch of stuff about why this messy love that we have for one another is is hard and complex. The sacrifice as we pour ourselves out, 
putting ourselves aside to strengthen others, becoming emotionally invested in the souls of others. Now, in that context, how do we think about things like self-care and, and avoiding burnout, really good things? How do, you, how do you think about those kind of things in a context where we're pouring ourselves out for other people? I reckon an illustration might help with this, so let me give you this. If you're in an airplane and it's going down and and you've got a kid with you, you're sitting next to your child on a plane, what order are you meant to put the oxygen masks on? You know they fall out of the ceiling and you're meant to shove the oxygen masks on? Whose mask do you put on first? You put your, your own mask on first, then you put it on the child's. Because if you run out of oxygen, then you and the kid are both going to crash, you're going to run out of oxygen anyway. Uh, you, you can't help them if you collapse first. Now, the same is true of our life and service of others. You've seen the push to pour yourself out, to spend and be spent, to act for the spiritual strengthening of others, all of that. So catch this, drink deeply of that, take that in, and then remember, for the good of others, you do need to put your own mask on first. So if you... If you burn out or if you don't have any boundaries or if you bust yourself up giving and giving and giving, you won't actually be a help to anyone in the long run if you bust yourself up that way. But make sure you get the reasoning right. It's not put your own mask on first because I'm number one and I'm more important than the person sitting next to me. It's not that. You put your own mask on first because I care about the person sitting next to me. So do your self-care, avoid burnout, all that kind of stuff, so that you can continue to love and serve and be there for God's people. Not because you're number one, Jesus is number one, and he says, go and serve. Do you see the difference? You see the reasoning behind it. Now, I reckon all of this takes a lot of wisdom, It takes a lot of self-awareness about who you are as a person and your own heart in all of this. Uh, I've got a friend who was so captured by the service of others that when they were your age, they sold their own bed so that they could give money to church. And maybe that's the kind of person who needs to be told, hey, make sure you do care for your own needs. Uh, And then there's other people who are like, what other people? I don't care. I'm, I'm it, right? So you need to know yourself in this and know who you are. But here's the big thing, guys, it's worth it. It's eternally valuable. Live lives that will see other people's lives changed for all eternity. It's Jesus' way. It's the way of love and it's so worth being spent and spending your life on. Take a moment to reflect on these things. The band's going to come up and I'll lead us in prayer in a moment. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the Lord Jesus who spent himself for us. Thank you that he gave up his very life for us, that he laid it down, that we might know you and have all the spiritual riches that are ours in Christ. And so, Father, please help us to be like our Lord Lord, we pray that you would take our lives and use them for your good in the world. 
stir up love more and more in our hearts for one another. Give us a spirit of generosity and care and kindness. Help us to see the world with spiritual eyes that see eternal things and so act in love. Father, would this be the case more and more by your spirit? Amen.